Hey everyone, welcome back to the Nehemiah series where we uh, are going through being friends in holiness today. And so let's recap where we have been. We started off with being friends in faith as the leader, Nehemiah, takes his biggest step of faith in confronting the tyrant king to ask him for compassion. The literal Holy Spirit miracle occurs, and for the first time in 141 years, God's people are set free from exile to return to rebuild their city, all financed by this tyrant king. They've learned to become friends in mission as they rally around a common vision, a common goal, a common purpose to restore the city, rebuild the walls. Um, they learn to become friends in the work. As they emerge out of the ex- out of exile to return home, they got to dig the f- dig the holes and build the fences and re-bolster the bars. They learn uh, to become friends in perseverance as two idiots come along, Sanballat and Tobiah, to frustrate the work and spread misinformation and uh, give threats of death um, to the leaders. They learn to become friends in justice as they navigate through a crumbled economy. Um, and, uh, and they learn to become friends in generosity as the leader sets the example in bringing people into his home and funding the feast for people to enjoy and the community to enjoy. Uh, they learn to become friends in betrayal as they're given death threats. They're forced to take extra measures to both work and defend themselves at the same time, signified traditionally and most notably by the sword and the trowel, one in one hand, one in the other they learn to become friends in sowing as they uh, pour into the field of the work that God is doing over the course of history and time, bringing the Messiah. And they learn to become friends in reaping as they harvest the fruits of their labor. The work is accomplished. The city is safe. People can return to worship and so on and so forth. They learn to become friends in that worship as they open up the word of God collectively together as the community of God. And they discover... Uh, who that God is that has blessed all of their efforts up until this point. So there we go. And now we are learning they are becoming friends in holiness together. Holiness. So um, we see here, and uh, let's start reading in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. It's special. It's separate. It is altogether different. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So we're still there in that worship service, right? And they're responding, they're reacting. The words of the law is being uh, read over them and they're like, oh, they're mourning, they're weeping. How could this be like this? Why, what's going on? And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our God. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So what's going on here? Okay. So they spent 141 years in exile 
unable to separate themselves culturally, religiously, economically from the people of Babylon and Assyria, right? They are, they've, they've been um, assimilated into that culture. They are not separated. They're in it. You can't, you can't practice your culture. You can't practice your religion. You can't worship God. You can't express yourself the way you want to. You are not holy. You are unclean. You're in a dirty place. Okay? You need to separate so that you can purify yourself and express yourself, your culture, your values, um, and create an economy that is different from theirs. Now, after sweat and blood and tears, they manage to do this, right? They've accomplished a short-term goal, which is to rebuild the walls, uh, protect the city, establish some families and households, and resume the worship of God. And they've done it. They open the word of God. They discover that God has a plan and a purpose that's bigger than they realized. Okay? That's bigger than the purpose for just their life and just that time in history. They discover they have been a part of a bigger story that actually started. And that's the reason they read the Pentateuch, the narrative. It is God's story of God's, well, it is God's story alongside of God's people. And they discover that they've been chosen for a particular task in that story, right? And that is to restore what had been lost so that the Messiah could come. The promise, the blessing to all the nations could come. The one who was prophesied about right at the beginning of the story, right? The man who'd be born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent would harm his heel. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? And ever since then, we've been looking for Messiah come. The one is then promised to Abraham, right? The seed that will be more than the stars, that through you, all the nations will be blessed. <clears throat> they discover that that is good news and it needs to be shared, even though the community had failed and neglected all of that. And they discover that despite their sorrows of falling short, ultimately, that good news applied to them too. And that was reason for great rejoicing. And the right response to the good news is that sorrow leads to joy. It's to respond with weeping and mourning for what was lost, but allowing joy to come in and be the salve to that sorrow and melancholy Allow joy to well up and overtake. And so they submitted to the call by their leaders for feasting and celebration, right? Go on your way, eat, drink, send portions to those without. Have great rejoicing because the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It will strengthen you. It will help you. See, this ultimately isn't something, and this is where we get into these struggles. Yeah, well, can't I be sad? Or look at all the Psalms. Like there, you know, there, there's, you know, laments in there and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, see, when the joy of the Lord is your strength, it's not something you just well up in yourself. You say, I don't feel like it. I don't feel joyful. It's like, well, it's not from you. It's not about you. 
It was never about you and it was never from you because it's the joy of the Lord that's your strength. You receive joy from the Lord because you're aligning with his God story. You're separating yourself out. You're, ma- you're being made holy, altogether different, separate, new. And you're being given the story that ultimately makes God joyful. Messiah's coming. My people are coming back. This is going to be great. Yes, it was broken and horrible and there is suffering of which I am most devastated. But, but I have a plan. I am faithful. I will accomplish this. Here we are. So let my joy strengthen you, says the loving father. As we continue to read, well, let's just do that. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people uh, with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. What's going on here? Okay. They started with the men. We got to straighten out the men, particularly the fathers of the households, right? You, as men, in response to and as part of uh, your process of sanctification, will rise to the occasion to be sanctified by the word of God, to be made holy, to be made more like Jesus. That's what it all means, right? You will be made more like Jesus, and you will ultimately become the head of a household, just like Jesus is the head of the church. That will mean that you need to learn how to take initiative and responsibility. You'll need to learn that because our culture, that is not the default for men because men are stupid and they don't understand. Like look at any TV sitcom. The dad is the idiot who's the butt of every joke. He doesn't understand why he's totally not self-aware, right? We don't have a culture that's going to support you in this. But the church, this is, this is where we do this. When we submit to godly leadership and we come around the word of God, the men can be given a different example and a better example, one in which we take initiative and responsibility as heads of households, as fathers of households, okay? We need to set the culture in the church. We need to, to protect the women and the children, Because our culture is having its way with men, women, and children. Now this gets very personal real quick. This gets very real real quick. Um, Because in our group, I had to call out our men a couple years ago. Because they're only showing up half the time. So I said, hey guys, you're only showing up half the time. What's going on with that? We can do better, right? How do you think that went over? You're like, you're right. We'll do better. (laughs) No, that's not how it goes. Because that's not our culture. And that's not what we want to hear. And we don't hear those things. And so we don't know how to respond when those things come, right? And we can take, it's hard for us actually, and, and just observe this. Take this week and just think about this. When someone gives you a fact, you'll jump to 
a conclusion about how you think that person wants you to feel about that fact, right? So if I say, hey guys, uh, we're only here 50% of the time. You'll jump to a conclusion. <gasps> they think I'm worthless. They think I'm pathetic. They think I'm not stepping up. They'll think that I'm, right? And so we pile in all these things onto facts because we can't receive a fact without putting a moral implication onto it um, immediately, right? It's hard for us to hold ideas in our mind. We, we want to be people who jump to moral conclusions very quickly, right? Um, and so this is how it went. They, they got mad, you know? The guys got mad at me for saying, for calling them out, you know? Say, so, hey guys, this is the fact. It's like, you're a jerk for saying the facts. It's like, hold on a second. Men, don't be men who do that, right? Who's the greater jerk? The person who stole the money or the person who called them out for stealing the money? See, we're in a culture where when we call people out for, for bad behavior, you're the jerk for calling out the bad behavior, not the person who incited the need for the call out because they were doing the bad behavior. That's our culture. Us men, we need to submit to godly leadership. We need to come together in community to learn how to be altogether separate and holy from a culture that would not submit to God's laws, not submit to God's ways, and they would try and restructure, reorient your heart and your mind to live in a different story other than God's story. So we don't rationalize our behavior away. We don't make excuses. We don't do the opposite to spite the person who's calling us out, right? No, we instead come together in community to study the words of the law, to understand God's kingdom and God's economy so that we can optimize becoming more like Jesus together. So we have to make our relationship with Jesus and with God's people non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. We don't compromise. We don't negotiate. Jesus is my most primary relationship. If your job is more non-negotiable than your relationship with Jesus, it's unacceptable amongst God's people. You'll show up to work every day and you'll miss Sunday 50% of the time. It's unacceptable. I love you guys. But we're about to send everybody out to new homes, new churches. People are going to get married and then go to other provinces or countries. We're going to spread all around this planet. We're going to be fruitful and multiply, amen? And we're going to pass this stuff on to our kids. And if we are people for whom... Our source of income is more important than our source of breath and life and being. We're dead in the water immediately. And so we have to talk about these things because I love you. And I love the people that you're going to interact with. And for 10 years, I've now observed the consequences of doing it the wrong way, doing it backwards. And I love you, and I don't want that for you.
So let's get into this thing together. Let's do it. Let's become men of God. Let's follow Jesus. Let's submit ourselves to godly leadership. Let's submit ourselves to his word. There ain't time to waste because it's not negotiable. And our first response is emotional conviction. Let's see it right here, right? They were weeping, they wept, and they mourned. They said, ah, we fell short. And God will bring conviction through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, I'm not here to condemn you. The Holy Spirit will bring conviction, will bring conviction, right? And so, and that usually comes in the form of something very specific, right? Hey, you are watching pornography and that's affecting your relationship with your wife and that's affecting how you view women and that's affecting your, your brain chemistry. So you, you know, that it impacts your day and how you work and how you focus and what you see as valuable and what you spend your time doing. Right? Maybe if you follow Jesus, you'd have a greater love for your wife and you could, uh, you could have a better relationship with your daughters and um, whatever. You're very specific. Say, hey, change this thing. Change this specific thing. Right? And it's easy to change. Right? See, condemnation comes in very vague, general ways. I'm not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. It's like, there's never any real identifiable problem and there's no real identifiable solution, right? Um, but if through the reading of God's word, you're convicted about something very specific and, uh, or, or a godly person comes along and says, hey, I see this in your life. Maybe we can, right? Course correct that. Like, hey, don't criticize all the time so eagerly, so quickly. Bring encouragement. May the first words out of your mouth be encouraged, right? Very specific, tangible change. And you can embrace that change. And you can take that on, right? Because there's forgiveness in Jesus. There's forgiveness, right? That God puts our sin as far as the east is from the west. There's forgiveness for you, for us. We are made separate from our sin. It's blotted out. You are made new. You're given robes of righteousness that the, the stain, the red scarlet stain has become white as snow. Okay, so there's forgiveness for you. And so you embrace it and you change. Versus condemnation. God convicts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Condemnation usually comes from your fear of other people. Right? It's vague. It attacks your identity. You're a failure. You're not good enough. And no change happens and things just get worse. There's conviction versus condemnation. See, revival... Revival, which is what's happening here for God's people, starts with the public exploration in the scriptures and then learning how to reorient your life to become friends in holiness together, that a whole people could be made holy. They discover things they didn't know about before. Like, wow, cool. Like the Feast of Booths is an ancient festival recounting the days where they were lost in the desert right? They just emerged as uh, out of slavery in Egypt and they're wandering in the desert and they set up uh, these booths to uh, protect them 
from the sandstorms or the oppressive sun, or these, these are like temporary shelters as they were nomads in the desert, right? Um, and they realized, they discovered, oh, we have a heritage there. That is us. They discovered that is the same God who's blessing us now. They were exiles and slaves in Egypt. We were exiles and slaves in Babylon. We are being brought to a promised land to be formed into a people, uh, to ex uh, experience God's promise for the nations. Wow, we're a part of that. That's amazing, right? And here's what happens. They start to reorient their life in order to match that story, okay? So on the second day, the heads of the fathers, the heads of all the people, um, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses, right? So there's the, the story, by Moses, that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, okay? I want to remember this time in the story of God, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, that is as written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in uh, their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Uh, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. Uh, uh, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. Interesting. Interesting, right? They reorient their life towards obedience. Okay? God says we should do this. Nah. Maybe that's a lot of effort. I don't know. Where the where are we gonna find palm leaves? Like pfft. that one was for a different time, a different historical context. Like it wasn't for us now. Uh, that that's relevant for those people back then in a different culture, time, and place. Not for today. You know. No, they don't do that. They don't rationalize it away. They say, "Oh, God wants us to do this. We should do this. Let's do this. How can we do this? Amazing." Let's create systems and structures to be able to accomplish this together. Let's be separated out. Let's be a holy people. They orient their life towards obedience. And so, uh, think about it like this. How many of you have read in the Bible, it told you that you should give to God? But you don't. Or you only give once in a while when you feel like it. You know you should tithe at least 10%. You don't like 3%. Looks like all the other things I have to pay for. You don't give to God your first fruits, your first and best. You give after your own personal comforts. How many of you have read the Bible and it told you that uh, you should give your time, serve the Lord, right? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might to the glory of God. So, Instead of that, you just, you don't show up or you don't serve. You don't spend time with people in your neighborhood. You don't help other people, right? How many of you, you've read the Bible? You understand that you need to pray. You need to have intimacy with God. You need to find times, quiet times alone, away from the crowds, in the secret room, to be with Jesus, to hear from God. 
but you don't pray. You don't have those quiet moments, moment to moment, saying, God, what are you doing right here, right now? What are you saying? How can I align with it? Or even just reading the Bible and saying, wow, God, it says you're good. Can you show me that in my life? How many of you, that's the case, and you still expect blessing? Gosh, that is... So we do. We prefer disobedience, but we expect blessing. That was my life. <laughs> like, we're, we all do that. We are all those people. We prefer disobedience, we expect blessing. I'm gonna be a good person, I wanna be happy. God doesn't bless disobedience. He blesses obedience. Um, we've been going up uh, North Muskoka uh, quite frequently these days and it just reminds me of all of these times spending uh, with the canoe right canoeing around the lake or up and down the river pathways and um in a river you know there's downstream and upstream right and so when you are canoeing downstream the waters the momentum of the water is pushing you forward right when you're swimming upstream the momentum of the water is pushing against you right you're always you have to fight your way upstream right if you go Downs, if you go downstream, the, the ride is smoother. It takes less energy. You have abundant resources in order to accomplish the journey. If you're trying to swim upstream, it takes extra work. It takes longer. It drains resources and it wastes time. If you go upstream, you're going against kingdom dynamics and ultimately going against God's blessing. Next week, we're going to talk about how do you turn the canoe around so that you can go downstream instead of upstream. This is ultimately what holiness is about. This is ultimately, right? So say, well, you just tell me that uh, God's going to be mad at me if I, you know, if I mess up. It's like, no, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about do you want to go downstream? Do you want to reorient your life towards obedience in every aspect of your life? Or do you want to continually fight to go upstream by holding on bare knuckle to your own preferences and your own comforts, right? And let's be honest, guys. Exile is tough. The last three years have been tough. Do you really want to white knuckle it? You really want to go upstream? Still, after all we've been through, after everything that we suffered, after all the tyranny, after all the confusion, after all the fear, after all the uh, relational loss. Do we really want to go upstream still? No. I don't. I don't. So help, be, be friends with me in holiness, let's help reorient each other towards obedience so we can go downstream together and be friends in holiness together. Verse 17 says here, 
And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. When we align the kingdom, I'm just reading it, guys. I'm just delivering the mail. It's very great rejoicing. For those of you who've never been to church, there's a reason you're still fighting. There's a reason you're still struggling. And I'm not saying the Christian life is easy, but it's blessed. It's the abundant life. And you're not alone because you have friends in holiness. So they continue to submit themselves to the word of God daily, every day. Not because of their feelings. Their feelings are some internal authority. I do what I want. I have my own comforts. I have my own ways, right? No, but because of the scriptures, the authority that's over them, over their feelings, over their preferences. See, the Bible will judge everyone. Hebrews 4.12 says, the Bible judges the desires and thoughts of your heart. And Jesus will ultimately judge you. This is something he says. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? Even faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in Trinity life in this final chapter? I hope so. It's been hard enough. Let's be friends in holiness together. What I want to do is I want to pray together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I'm tired of white knuckling. I'm tired of clenching onto my own way. God, would you change my heart? Change my desire to want to be separated out for your plan and purposes. Would you help turn me around to desire to go the kingdom way? And Jesus, thank you for your cross. Thank you for your submission to death so that I could live the abundant life downstream in the kingdom of God. Pray this all in your name. Amen. Guys, enjoy talking to your R3 leaders and each other about all these things. And I hope something beautiful happens for you and you become greater friends in holiness today. Enjoy.